In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the paths and stages, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Whatever the virtues of the many paths, what is it? Whatever. Yoke of knowledge, yoke of knowledge. <laughs> Say it again. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps Thank on you. the path of omniscience. Little gaps happening. And your buzzer. Yeah, her. Uh, Cynthia has uh, trains, planes, sirens, quite a beautiful uh, orchestra of New York City sounds. Hey, if you want more of it, I'll just leave myself <laughs> off the entire time, right? If you, yeah, if you like it so much here, I'll leave it on. <laughs> So Derek, good evening. You're, you're buzzing, Derek, as well. Oh, I, I am a buzzer tonight, Anna. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Starting over. Good evening and welcome to all of you who are new to the remake stage. <laughs> so uh, tonight we go into the third uh, course of what will now be four courses of the introductory foundation preliminary track of the Rime Shedra, which is common to all the Shedras in the Tibetan system of Shedra. And uh, so uh, this third course, we're going to go through logical reasoning. You don't really need to know it, but the Tibetan word is Ta-Rik, T-A-R-I-K. So the three topics, the three topics that are the introductory topics for Abhidharma and Pramana, which are two of the five main topics of the Shedra curriculum, are Dudra, which means uh, is translated as collected topics. Du is a collection, is a, a collection, and draw somehow is translated as topics draw is like as in shade draw uh, is making it known and uh, somehow they interpret draw in in terms of do draw as being making a collection a collection of what topics a collection of topics anyway so there's Dudra is the first one and that sort of is the summary of all the topics in the Abhidharma literature to some extent and then we had Lorik is the second one L-O-R-I-K Lo is being the intellect or mind and in, in this case, it's used as being the most general type of mind because the Rick is the classifications or varieties of mind. And uh, 
So within the types of mind, then you have all sorts of different types of mind. And as we know in Tibetan, there's a number of different words for mind that have very similar meanings. And then the third one is ta-rik, T-A-R-I-K. Ta is example or sign. So it's the classification of signs. And signs are the third member of a syllogism. Syllogism is a, a, a hypothetical statement that has a subject and a predicate and a reason. And if you've forgotten your grammar and don't know what a predicate is, it's something that you predicate about the subject. So you say, the subject is a predicate. <laughs> That's your predicate. And then you give the reason because it's a type of, uh, the subject is being predicated because it's worthy of um, analysis. The mountain is on fire because there's smoke, is the traditional one. The subject is the mountain, the predicate is on fire or has a fire on it, and the reason is smoke. So Tariq is classifications of reasons. And uh, between the three of them, the idea is to encapsulate what is to be known, what knows what's to be known. You know, so what is what is to be known is the objective world. What knows the objective world are the different types of minds or consciousnesses or mental cognitive states. And then how, the third one, how does, how does the mind know in the case of inferential cognition? Indirect, valid cognition, there's no intermediary and so there's no technique for like how to know. It's just like, that's what our mind does. Our mind knows its object. And so there's evident objects and there's hidden objects. And evident objects are objects that the mind can know through sense experience. And then hidden objects are objects that the mind has to get at by using a, a process of reasoning that's based on sense experience. And that's called inference. And the importance of inference is enormous because the um, understanding of the nature of reality is what liberates us from suffering. And the nature of reality is not an evident object. Otherwise, we would all be experiencing it or have experienced it directly and would be liberated. And so it's a hidden object, and knowing it causes liberation. And so we want to know that object, knowing it directly, 
non-conceptually, without intermediary, produces liberation. And since it's so utterly different than our ingrained habitual way of understanding reality, it's highly rare for anybody to just sort of come upon the nature of reality as a direct non-conceptual, non-unmediated cognition on their own. So instead we have to learn about the nature of reality by observing it. We observe the impermanence of it. We observe our suffering. We observe the way reality is made up of parts, how things interact. We observe how my consciousness, how my cognitive capability works. And gradually through understanding all those things, we develop an inferential conceptual understanding of the nature of reality. And by um, deepening that inferential understanding, ideally, we get closer, we, we uh, lessen the bonds of our uh, imprisonment by ignorance, making it easier, you know, sort of getting closer and closer to the possibility of having that direct, unmediated, non-conceptual cognition of reality that liberates which will always, no matter how close we get, it'll be a leap. But it's like, now it's like leaping from here to the end of the universe. For me, I don't know about you guys. <laughs> and uh, ideally, by, by uh, a lot of practice and a lot of study, we get closer. And so it's just like leaping from here to, uh, let's say, Neptune. That's still quite a leap. <laughs> so get closer and closer through the process of uh, deepening, strengthening our inferential understanding of the nature of reality. And that's the reason why there's such an obsession in the Buddhist tradition, and particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, of understanding conceptually the nature of emptiness, of reality, of Buddha nature, of reality and so many different versions of it, which to some extent they're like trying to prove their version is the, is the most skillful, you know, to say that theirs is the most correct really only means that it's the most skillful in helping people get close to that direct experience. Uh, but to some extent they're writing it for their, there's, they're in writing those texts they're going through the process themselves of developing that inferential cognition and so studying those texts is a matter of developing that conceptual understanding inferential understanding and getting closer by going through the process of studying those texts which is the plan for the future after going through this um, so in the fall, earlier we talked about uh, jumping to Chandra Kirti, but I realized that 
we didn't we were going to do the uh, tenants of the different of the four different schools this spring but uh, this book talk took longer than expected and so we'll do this whole book including the meditation part which I think you'll probably find fairly familiar but it's helpful anyway and uh, in the fall we'll go through the tenants this uh, the uh, sort of preparatory topic for approaching emptiness or the middle way which is one of the five topics of the Shadro curriculum the, the uh, preliminary or primer, primer, primer text for the middle way Madhyamaka aspect of the Shadro curriculum is to go through the tenets of the different four different schools And the word in Tibetan for that is drup, D-R-U-P, just like flowers droop after the, you don't water them in, uh, frequently enough, or people droop as they get <laughs> old. And uh, drup ta, T-H-A, and ta means uh, limits. Like when we talk about the four extremes, those are have the word ta in them, limits, the four limits. And droop is accomplish or establish, sorry, the establishment of limits, limits, which is a sort of oblique way of referring to the, the development of tenets in philosophical systems. But that's the name of the primer is droop ta. Drup is the same term, uh, D-R-U-B or P, that sort of depends on your preference, um, is the same Tibetan word as in uh, the Tibetan for Siddha, Mahasiddha, is uh, Drup Top, is one who has accomplished establishment. Top is accomplished or obtained establishment. And so these words have very different meanings in different contexts. Uh, just like Rikpa, where we saw, um, or Shnana, just meant to be aware. Anyway, uh, so uh, for this review, I thought I would uh, go through a number of charts that we've seen before, and just and, uh, outlines of the topics and make uh, help us all become refresh our memories of them and that will make it easier to go through the next section and cumulatively all of it will be make it easier to understand the presentations of the nature of reality or emptiness that will go through subsequently so then we'll do chandra kirti's Madhyamakavatar in uh, the winter of 2024 which will be the 20th anniversary of the Rime Shedra that began with Chandra Kirti's Madhyamaka Avatara, uh, Cynthia and Morgan being um, the uh, two that were with me or us at that point. And instead of going through it over uh, what we did five courses that time, Hopefully we'll, we'll be able to do it more quickly. 
instead of just jumping for those of you that weren't here earlier instead of just jumping into the tibetan commentaries on that on the the presentation that's encapsulated in that key text i thought it would make sense to go through that text together with everyone again And there's uh, there's three options for which version of that to use. There's uh, the one by Zongsar Kensei Rimshe, his commentary on it. There's the one by uh, the Padmakara. Well, the Padmakara translation of the text is actually in Kensei Rimshe's commentary, but in the version that's published by the Padmakara translation committee called Introduction to the Middle Way. They have a commentary by Mipam in there, um, which is somewhat difficult, very difficult in many places. And then there's a new version coming out soon, a translation by, uh, I mean, there are other versions, but a translation by, um, what is it, Jan Wiedemeyer, the gentleman who's written a lot of on Nagarjuna, and we've seen some of his work on Nagarjuna. So we'll see what that looks like. But uh, Zongsars is uh, is really an excellent commentary. The only problem is it's very long and detailed. It's also very funny, <laughs> which is not really a problem. It's definitely a plus. And uh, for the fall, um, I had been saying we would use the same series, volume three, but um, I, I got to think about that because the presentation, I have to check the presentation in these texts versus other books because unlike the, with these two books, the, the content of these two books, the content of the tenant systems, there are a number of public uh, published translations and commentaries on that material that are available that might be one of which might uh, better suit us so i will get back to us about that over time anyway uh anything else any comments before we dive in Let's see. Uh, okay. So this is uh, sort of where we began this journey, classification of phenomena. This wonderful chart by Carl uh, Brunholzel, created for the Natarta Institute, where he's one of the main professors. Uh, founded and overseen by Dzogchen Punlap Rinpoche. Phenomena can be classified into objects, subjects, and the methods that lead to cognition of objects and subjects. And, and we'll see a little overlap and a little bit of uh, repetition, but this is a very nice scheme of classification. So. Uh, this chart happens to focus on subject uh, objects 
and then we'll have other charts that focus on other aspects. Objects can be classified in terms of the way they're taken as objects. And uh, that's a topic that we ended the last course with, the uh, different types of objects in terms of how subjects experience objects. The uh, appearing object or apprehended object, the referent object, and the object of engagement. From among these, let's see, there's four types of objects, appearing, apprehended, referent, and object of engagement. Which one would be the, um, the object of a conceptual mind, anybody? Is it the... Or which ones? Yeah, the referent object. Does a, does a conceptual mind have any other of these? Isn't the conceptual mind actually engaging? Would it be the object of engagement? Well, sometimes the referent object is an accurate representation of the object of engagement. Uh, but it's, 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 um, it's direct object is the referent object as opposed to the object of engagement. Uh, 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 admittedly, the text presented it a little bit like what you just said or implied, which was that the conceptual mind also does have the same object of engagement. But most, well, or the version I learned, uh, but basically, regardless of versions, we can say that like the uh, direct object of a conceptual mind is the referent object and the direct object of a non-conceptual mind is the object of engagement and the indirect object of a conceptual mind is in some cases the object of engagement. What, what kind of cases would it be where a uh, conceptual mind's indirect object is not the object of engagement? when there is no real object of engagement. Like the self or something like that? Yeah, something silly like the self or a, a rabbit with horns, that sort of thing. Exactly, thank you. Okay. Uh, a conceptual mind has also an appearing object. A non-conceptual mind has an appearing object as, and an object of engagement. Now they say, or the apprehended object. The, the uh, distinction between appearing object and apprehended object is that the appearing object is the representation of the object of engagement in the sense faculty, where there's an what's uh, sometimes called an aspect or a replica of the outer object is uh, formed, so to speak, in the fabric of the sense faculty which is fine matter that resides in the sense organ. And the apprehended object is what the subject actually comprehends, apprehends. So when we look at things in our visual field, let's say, and then we identify an object, as we're looking around, all of the objects in our visual field are appearing in our sense faculty 
Does that make sense? That's sort of important, right? All of the phenomena in our sense fields uh, um, manifest in our sense faculty as appearing objects, but we don't apprehend all of them. We, we only apprehend like a tiny fraction as we direct our attention to them. Okay, so then objects can also be taken in terms of their entity. And there's two types of entities, although it's a little bit odd to say that there's an entity of a non-thing, but entities can be uh, divided into things and non-things. And uh, actually, I should back up a little bit because there's some helpful information I glossed over objects. Um, so there's a number of synonyms for these main terms. Knowable objects, existence, established bases. So uh, bases, bases of designation, bases of uh, experience, established, i.e. To some extent, truly established, since we're taking the South Trontica school's tenant system as the basis. In that tenant system, phenomena, real phenomena, are dharmas, and they are truly established bases of existence. They're objects of comprehension, and they're phenomena, and those are synonymous terms. They refer to the same entity, which is objects, or objects, uh, and each have a slight different nuanced um, aspect that they're referring to. Then there's subjects, which is synonymous with mind, consciousness, and awareness. And okay, so then we have things, our conditioned phenomena. Phenomena subject to causes and conditions produced as results. They come about as the results of causes and conditions. They're impermanent. They're radically impermanent. They have momentary existence, immediately disintegrate. And if they're lucky, they act as the primary cause of the next moment of the continuum of whatever phenomena they appear as, also known as specifically characterized phenomena, meaning that they are a specific instance of entity, and they are beyond the pale of our conceptual generalizing process, or exist separate from us, separate from our conceptual world mind then there's non-things not condition non-conditioned they're not produced by causes and results which we should we should talk about a little bit in a second they're permanent phenomena which here means that they just last more than one moment doesn't mean that they continue eternally it just means that they they have have a duration of more than one moment, or really, in this case, an undetermined du uh, duration. And they're generally characterized phenomena. They are um, um, general ideas, 
conceptual ideas, conceptions. And so um, you might say, well, aren't conceptions produced from causes and conditions? You know, don't we come up with a conception of this or that by causes and conditions? Which is a good point. Um, so uh, it would mean that this aspect of being non-conditioned refers to conditioning of a different type than sort of uh, mental habitual conditioning that we all know quite well. Things Can I ask a question? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm going back to what you, when you were describing the specifically characterized phenomena, I'm not sure if I heard you correctly. Did you were you saying they existed separate and apart from our conceptual process? That's right. In the, really in the South Trontica world, yeah. They in this in others, they don't look at it as that the perceiver is what makes it an entity no no the entities are there independent of us so they they actually think those things are things with their own yeah they're they're a subset of the sarvastavadins and sarva means all and vastavadin means those who profess that all exists oh sorry sarva asti Asteas exist, and Vaudens is those who profess. Okay, so they think that, I, I mean, besides Everything the question exists. of whether there's some physical phenomenon, but it actually, they treat it as existing like a tree exists as a tree, even when no one's looking at it. Yeah. No, no human, they don't have that view that, you know, like water looks different to every different type of, uh, I mean, water versus pus versus nectar and amrita, that's not part of their view. That's a, a later view. No, uh, their their view is uh, does incorporate that, uh, but they say that um, regardless of how each different creature or knower experiences a phenomena, that phenomena exists in its own way independent of the knowers. How did they define if if there's like the, the in that classic example of water like how does that so they don't try to define how what it what that thing is whether it's water or pus or amrita they're just sort of saying well there is something there that's that, right that we can't really define or we define by by our so they don't have that view that we're really defining the thing by our perception right our conception of it that's right hmm so that the, only comes the thing into play itself, in which... the thing itself and from its own side the thing itself exists as itself from its own side completely independent of of any perceivers uh-huh even though they recognized that different perceivers perceived it differently that's kind of interesting I don't okay. think they talk much about different perceivers perceiving it differently, but I, I think they must have understood that. Hmm. 
but they yeah. don't make a big deal of it whereas yeah. later later peoples do yeah thanks. so things are uh, can be classified in terms of their entity or their function and function includes causes phenomena can function as causes or as conditions or as results And uh, this this classification of um, things as functions is what's called a terminological classification as either causes, conditions, or, or results. It's not an ontological classification like we have on the left in terms of entity. It's uh, like uh, the role that an entity plays in a particular relationship or situation can be different one day to the next, so to speak. So the same entity could be at one point a cause or a condition or a result. And um, the main uh, we didn't really go through causes and conditions in great detail, but basically there's importance in this notion of like, what's the direct cause of an entity, which we've, we, we've summed up into these, we've basically summed up the causes into these four. I focused on these four because this scheme is what, uh, gets carried over into the later traditions as being the most important. So the causal condition would be like the direct cause. Uh, but there are this, there is this further subdivision of different types of causes and also different types of results. And the direct and indirect is a particularly helpful one to know conceptually in talking about phenomena and their causation, direct, indirect cause, substantial cause, and cooperative cause. And those are all used in a way that uh, sort of abides by common sense of like what you would understand to be the direct cause or an indirect cause. Like the direct cause of a tree is its is the seed, and an indirect cause is the sun and the moisture and the earth and the minerals and the warmth of the sun. And uh, the substantial cause has to do with like the substance. So the cause of a vase, the example they use, is the clay. It's the substance. That's the cause of the vase, which is sort of an odd way of talking about things for us, but that's what they would say. Then there's the cooperative causes, the potter and the wheel and so forth. Anyway, uh, we have the causal condition, which in the case of uh, the tree is the uh, seed. It sort of incorporates um, these other factors, but the con the four conditions really refers to um, cognition. It really focuses down on a, the uh, um, experience of a subject, 
and knower. And for every moment of cognition, there's a causal condition, which is the um, the interaction between the subject and the object. The object condition is the focal point, so to speak, or the focus of the cognition, such as in a visual perception of a tree. And then the causal condition is like it being daytime and there being light. The uh, dominant condition, the condition um, that sort of dominates the way that experience, that whole uh, causal process is conditioned, uh, experienced rather, is the sense field that is being experienced that is being uh, activated. So in this case, the visual consciousness is the dominant condition. And that means that it results in a visual sense consciousness, a visual experience. And then the immediately preceding condition is the whatever cognitive state existed in the moment before that then serves as the direct cause of the next moment of consciousness. So I sort of confused things. A minute ago, I said the causal condition is the direct cause. Uh, they're probably better not to try to compare them and leave them as different ways of classifying the interactions of different dharmas. And then we have the yeah. I uh, I keep thinking from this list here that in some context it has something to do with karma. Yeah, this is all karma. This okay. is all about karma. Yeah, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I forgot to say that because I thought it was so. Yeah, that's that's this is the description of karma function activity. Thank you. Well, uh, very helpful. Things can be classified in terms of entity, and there's three main types of entities. There's matter, and there's consciousness, and there's non-associated formations. I think we've gone through these. Matter is defined as that which is appropriate to be matter. And uh, consciousness is that which knows an object. And then non-associated formations are those weird things that... Uh, are sort of you can't ignore, but you can't quite pin down as as uh, what do they say? Something fish or fowl. of other here we go
Ah, there we go. There's all those other ones. Okay. Here we have these four relationships. Helpful to remember. Here we have a scheme of uh, five. Darn. Um, Barbara redid this. And I, I forget to use that version. Four relationships. Okay. Um, there's equivalence. Two phenomena are identical is one option, but in terms of the comparison of two different of two phenomena, they can be identical. Which is a little odd to say that we're comparing them. There can be uh, one of them is a subset of the other, which are these two and three, it's that option. There's some overlap between the two types of phenomena is a, th is a third option, but there's not a complete overlap. And then the last option is that they have absolutely zero relationship or inter, um, interlappingness, overlappingness. Okay. Here's the topics that uh, we go through in each of these introductory texts. Here's the collected topics. <clears throat> we just went through the explanation of things in terms of entity and function. Non-things include space, analytical cessation, and natural cessation. Analytical cessation is cessation brought about through the path. And then there's uh, the objects in terms of how they're taken as objects. We just went through that. There's subjects, which is just the mind. In the Dudra literature, since the focus is on objects, they just name the mind because it can be an object. What, what type of cognition is the mind the object of? The direct object of, i.e. non-conceptual object. Of what type of mind or cognition? Uh, there's, there's two, sorry, Cynthia. You, you said of what type of mind, oh, I'm sorry, of what type of cognition is the mind a direct object of? Is that the question? Uh, is it of what type of uh, cognition? Of what type of direct non-conceptual cognition is the mind an object of? Oh, direct not. Oh, so you're narrowing it down to the direct non-conceptual ones. Right. So would that be the self-awareness? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Yes, the self-aware cognition. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Um, then there's then there's this section in the Jujur text that we didn't really go over. We just uh, sorry we didn't dwell on. We didn't go into deeply. We we looked at very briefly. 
uh, these different ways of looking at phenomena, uh, these sets, contradictory or connected, neg negative or concrete phenomena, general or particulars. And all of them are different ways of, of uh, looking at generalities and particulars. Negations are generalities, contradictory phenomena are generalities, and concrete phenomena are particulars, and connected phenomena are particulars. Phenomena that are one and different, we didn't go through that. It's sort of a linguistic sort of thing that is not that important. And then definition, definiendum, and the basis we've gone through in, in various places. And we did it as well. So then in the classifications of mind text, the low rick, we have the divisions of mind, the definitions of mind, and then we have the types of valid cognition, the definition of valid cognition. The definition of a valid cognition is that which knows its object correctly without the use of a sign, without the uh, use of a image. Yeah, let's look at some, let's look at the, uh, where is the Lorik text? Here we go. Oh, that's just the table of contents. Sorry about that. So uh, let's see. Why does this thing block everything? There we go. Okay, the definition of valid cognition. is a new and undeceiving awareness. An awareness that clarifies what was not previously known. Okay, so a new and undeceiving includes if a, a, a cognition is new and unconceiving, it's non-conceptual. And it's the first moment of a non-conceptual cognitive series. And we talked about this nuance between uh, uh, direct valid cognition of the first moment and subsequent cognition, where in uh, this system, subsequent cognition has less of a sort of transformational or revolutionary impact.
the types of direct valid cognition are sense direct, mental direct, and not all mental cognition is direct valid cognition. Most mental cognition is not direct valid cognition, but only a small amount of mental direct valid cognition is. And there's two types of mental direct valid cognition. The first type is the uh, first moment of mental cognition after a sense direct valid cognition, or that occurs after a sense direct valid cognition. And uh, the second type of mental direct valid cognition are the various types of uh, extrasensory perception. There's self-aware direct valid cognition, the mind knowing itself, which it does in a direct and valid way, not conceptually. There's yogic direct valid cognition, which is the cognition of a person who has accomplished the, the unity of shamatha and vipassana, which happens on the path of preparation or joining the second of the five paths. And the object is the nature of phenomena as empty. Then we talked about the object of direct valid cognition is seeming direct cognition. It seems like it's a direct cognition, but it's not. And the second type of uh, valid cognition is inferential valid cognition. Mary Beth. Can you have a yogic direct valid cognition of anything other than emptiness? You can, but you would, uh, you can, it's a little bit of a, uh, yeah, as I was saying that, I was thinking the same thing. The thing is that when you would experience the tree and so forth, in terms of your yogic direct valid cognition, your yogic direct valid cognition cognizes the empty tree, cognizes the direct, the true nature of the tree. Whereas um, a yogic direct valid cognition can happen simultaneously with a sense direct valid cognition or a mental direct valid cognition. Just as self-aware direct valid cognition happens at the same time as sense and mental direct valid cognition. Yogic direct would happen at the same time as well. It's funny, there's not much written that I've, uh, that I know of that describes what I'm saying and supports it. But this is my understanding. It's something we should, could look into. It's a good question. But my understanding is that uh, when you have that level of experience of the foundation for it being the unity of shamatha and vipassana, then um, as you're using your sense cognitions, your uh, the object of yogic direct valid cognition would be the emptiness of the phenomena that your senses are experiencing, whereas the object of the sense direct valid cognition would be the shape or color and so forth of the senses, the object of the senses. And so they would happen at the same time.
time, I believe. So I don't think you would have a yogic direct valid cognition of a color, let's say. But that's but, a good uh, question. Emptiness of the color. Right. Okay. But that's a very good question. Let's let's, let's look into that. Uh, so then the second type of the two types of valid cognition is inferential valid cognition. And there's two types of that. There's inferential valid cognition for oneself and for others. This is an odd little division of like, well, isn't inferential valid cognition sort of one thing? <laughs> and yes, it is. And so really there's inferential valid cognition for oneself that oneself has. And the, the division of inferential valid cognition into two types, the second type being inferential valid cognition for others is done purely for the sake of um, how do we bring about an inferential valid cognition if it doesn't arise sort of spontaneously I guess is the reason if inferential valid cognition for oneself is a is like a spontaneous experience based on prior experience. We understand the reality of a situation, uh, but in situations where we don't spontaneously have an inferential valid cognition, or in situations where we're trying to get others to have an inferential valid cognition, then there's the elaborate procedure of uh, syllogistic reasoning that has the three parts and has the three modes of relationships between those three parts, the subject, the predicate, and the reason. So when we talk about reasoning and logic in the Buddhist tradition, we're really generally talking about for others, I believe. I could have this totally back backwards, but we'll find out soon enough as we dive into this section of the text. But uh, then there's the, the uh, interesting situation of the results of valid cognition where uh, we had that, uh, where was that, those verses? Well, basically that it, without analysis, we experience phenomena um, as if we, we think that phenomena exist as they appear. And then with slight analysis, we think that phenomena um, exist as we experience them, as we perceive them. Sure. And then with extensive analysis, we understand that phenomena are completely beyond uh, description. Something like that. I need to find, uh, where would that be? That would be in the Lowrick text, I guess.
Uh, I have to find that uh, that verse. I'll have that. I'll I'll bring that next week. Where were we? That is non-valid cognition. What does that mean? There's wrong cognition. Um, there was there was cognition that's through, that's um, direct but not valid, right? So up here we have these two terms, direct and valid, and the direct is describing it as non-conceptual, and the valid means correct. So examples of direct invalid cognition are when there's a defect with our sense organ and it's still perceived as a non-conceptual cognition but it's not a valid cognition and they distinguish that from doubt and then we glossed the the text that we use went through these each of these uh, in a bit of a cursory manner. They sort of fall out of this notion, again, just like in the Dudra, this section here. Basically, once you understand the difference between conceptual and non-conceptual, conceptual happening through generalities and non-conceptual being the world of real particulars, then all the other categories are very similar. And then we went into mental factors. What are the uh, this the uh, difference between mind and mental factors? Mind is that which cognizes the entity of an object, and mental factors are that which cognize the characteristics of an object. Mind and mental factors have five congruencies they're congruent in five ways they have the same basis meaning they have the same um, faculty that's going on so you can have a primary mind there's six types of primary mind based on the six senses the five uh, external oriented ones in the mind and um, each of those is called a primary mind. And so you can have a visual consciousness that's accompanied by a set of mental events. And the basis for the mental events or factors and the primary mind will be the same, the visual consciousness. They have the same time. They have the same object. They have the same substance, which is the faculty and they have the same price. No, I can't remember the fifth one. <laughs> Let's see, what is the fifth congruency? Jeez, gotta remember these things. Mind and mental factors, divisions between mind and mental facts, definition to be congruent, page 21.
congruent in terms of the support. They depend on the same sense faculty, so I said basis. In terms of the observed object, they have the same observed object. In terms of aspect, they have the same apprehended aspect in regard to the mode of apprehension. They occur at the same time, and they're of the same substance. They share an equal number of moments of a similar type. Then there's the 51 mental events that come in six groups. There's the five omnipresent mental events. So here's the five congruencies. And then the six groups of mental factors, five omnipresent ones, the five object determining ones, the 11 virtuous ones, the six root afflictions, the 20 secondary afflictions, and the four changeable events. And so let's look at some lists of these quickly so that we know these different categories well. The omnipresent ones are feeling, discrimination, impulse, contact, and mental engagement. So they, they happen in every moment of cognition. And, uh, and the new one, as do these, the object determining ones happen also in every, really in every moment of cognition. And the only difference is that the, these five are oriented towards the object. Whereas these five don't really have that orientation, particularly, even though they say that, you know, contact and mental engagement clearly are object oriented, as is discrimination and to some extent impulse. Yeah, they're, I don't know. They're, they have, uh, there was some nuance between the two. Anyway, we have these first two categories that are uh, sort of mental faculties in terms of sort of mental capabilities. And then there's the large groups of uh, what we would call emotional experiences, virtuous ones, maybe not faith, we would not say maybe it's an emotion, but shame, embarrassment, non-attachment, non-hatred, i.e. love, non-ignorance, um, joyous effort, suppleness, conscientiousness, equanimity, and nonviolence. And then we have the root afflictions, desire, anger, pride, ignorance, ignoring rather, doubt, and afflicted view. So of the uh, emotional types of um, mental factors, these six root afflictions are really the most important. And of these, the afflicted view, the different types of afflicted view are the most important. The first is thinking that what's called the transitory collection, which is the entire collection of the skandhas, is somehow, somehow constitutes the person, the self. holding an extreme view, 
means clinging to one of the uh, uh, four extremes, eternalism, nihilism, or so forth, holding one's own view as supreme, thinking that uh, one knows better than anyone, holding ethics as supreme, some particular discipline is held to be the uh, end all and the be all and then wrong views is not understanding karma and the four noble truths is wrong view we have the secondary afflictions wrath resentment concealment spite enmity avarice hypocrisy deceit self-satisfaction violence non-shame non-embarrassment lethargy agitation non-faith laziness, non-consciousness, forgetfulness, non-distraction, and non-introspection. You could see day by day how many of these you have. You could do like a tally at the end of the day. And whoever has the most variety wins. Then there's the changeable mental factors that can go either way, positive or negative, contrition, regret, sleep, sluggishness and then these two examination and analysis these two major mental factors vitarka and vichara in sanskrit then there's um concepts which are the non-associated formations the idea that there's a person that owns the collection of the skandhas uh, and then there's the rest of them acquisition life nature of sharing similar species making different species meditative concentration on the thoughtless realms in the in extinction facts obtained by thoughtless meditation all these weird things names words letters birth stability or duration uh, aging is decay, impermanence, changeability, becoming, distinction, union, speed, succession, region, time, number, totality, and differentiation. What an odd basket of phenomena those are. So those are the five consciousnesses, the five uh, skandhas in great detail. Why did you go quiet? Oh, you muted yourself. Is that me? Uh, no. I muted myself suddenly. Sorry about that. I was moving the little visual thing of us around, and I did that. Thank you for letting me know. So then we have uh, another way of displaying this might be helpful to see the 75 dharmas of the early tradition, Sautrantikas. There's conditioned dharmas and unconditioned or uncreated dharmas, space, path, extinction, and natural extinction. So there's this, this category is one base. When we get into the tenant systems, we'll see reference to the five bases. And the five bases refers to five categories of dharmas, of phenomena. One base is the uncreated elements, the uncreated dharmas. And then the other four bases are 
Matter, mind, mental factors, and non-associated formations. So it's helpful to sort of get that scheme down before we go into the tenant system. The matter, internal matter, outer matter. Now, uh, the 75 dharmas doesn't have the same terminology, so let's use the 100 dharmas for the mental factors. So here I numbered them. Group one is mind. And there's these types of mind. In the uh, Chittamatra tradition, they add two more types of primary mind, ego mind and alia vishnana. And interestingly, whereas the first six primary minds are exclusive and happen independent, you can't have both a sense conscious, smell consciousness, and a taste at the same time. You always have ego and alia vijnana consciousness happening until certain stages of enlightenment, along with the other six consciousnesses. Then there's forms, this group two or three or whatever, the different types of matter. Then there's uh, mental factors, the omnipresent, the object determining, virtuous, and then negative, the, the afflictions, there's root and secondary, and then changeable factors. And then there's part two of the uh, of this chart, the not associated formations, acquisition, life, shared qualities, weird things, nature of common persons, annihilation trance, thoughtless trance, result of the trances, birth, old age, subsistence, impermanence, becoming, etc., etc., harmony, yoga. <laughs> speed. And then there's the unconditioned. The uh, Chittamatra has more, has six unconditions. Extinction through intellectual power, extinction due to lack of a productive cause, through the fourth dhyana, extinction of sensation and conception, and then suchness as it isness. Ta-ta-ta. Okay, so that was the mental factors and how they stack up in terms of skandhas and dharmas. The next course, so uh, we'll look forward briefly. Let's see, should we do, is there any more? Um, we just went through all this. This is just a summary of it, right? Collected topics, objects, entity, how they're taken as objects, things and non-things, entity function, entity is matter, consciousness, non-associated formations, causes, conditions, results. Um, here's the five groups, uncreated, forms, 
primary mind mental factors, non-associated formations. Just so you get the five down. The five skandhas, the 75, the 100. Uh, we went through that chart here. So uh, the different types of cognition, just to make sure we're good with these. Valid, non-valid. There's non-valid includes wrong cognition. Um, that that has uh, there's wrong uh, direct cognition, which is the the sense uh, problem with the sense faculty, and then there's wrong inferential cognition, and then there's doubt that vacillates. And remember, there were three types: doubt that vacillates towards the fact, the truth; doubt that vacillates away from it; and doubt that's just sort of frozen. Direct valid cognition, we went through inferential oneself and others. And then there's this basket of uh, types of mind in between mistaken consciousness, conceptuality that superimposes one thing over another thing is, uh, is conceptual, mistaken conceptual cognition arises from mistaken consciousness. Conventional consciousness is based on terminology, on language. Then we have inference and arisen from inference, recollection, and then actual myth, a wish, is conceptuality that has a hidden object. These have evident objects. Maybe not. Maybe that's not an incorrect way to state it. I don't know why they separated it out this way, these types. It's interesting. Wrong consciousness arisen from an impaired basis is seeming direct. So it's direct, but it's not valid. The result, the three stages, got to find that, uh, those stanzas for it. Okay, let's look briefly forward. And we'll go through this a number of times because it's complicated and hard to get down. Two systems lead to understanding of the middle way. There's pramana and abhidharma. Pramana focuses on the subjective side using epistemology and logic. Abhidharma and the objective side using phenomenology and psychology. It's not really two systems that independently lead to Madhyamaka, but that together lead to Madhyamaka. These two are the two legs for understanding the middle way, Pramana and Abhidharma. And then Madhyamaka focuses on ontology uh, through a system of tenets that focuses primarily on understanding the two truths. Pramana is valid cognition. There's direct and indirect. Direct has these four types sense, mental, self, and yogic. Indirect is based on the three components and modes of a syllogism. The three components are that there's a subject and a predicate and a reason. And then we have this complicated and uh, very sort of formulaic way of describing the three modes or the three uh, necessary relationships between the three components in order to have 
a valid syllogism. And I think, uh, uh, maybe, maybe we'll skip the three note modes. I don't know for tonight, but uh, one more thing that's important is that the reason has three types. There's three types of reasons. This arrow should really be connected to the reason. There are three types of um, reasons used in a syllogistic reasoning. Reasons are ways of reasonings or correct reasoning. Three means a valid inference suitables that uh, bring about suitable establishment feasibility, valid establishment of an inferential valid cognition. And those are uh, the reason of nature, such as fire is hot. So the, uh, the cloth uh, the cloth that's sitting on the stove is the subject and the predicate is it's going to burn it's going to burn up and the reason is because uh, the stove has a fire on it which is hot and burns so there's the reasoning of nature there's the reasoning from causation productive cause um, My dog pooped on the carpet because there's poop on the carpet. <laughs> poop comes from animals. And uh, so there's a causal relationship between the dog and the poop. Sorry, Uma. <laughs> Sorry to talk about you in this way. I apologize. Then there's uh, effect. This third one is not really said correctly. Oh, darn. Uh, we need a better version of that third one. Sorry about all this flipping about here. There, here we go. Let, let me come back to that third one. Let me think about that for a minute, see if there's something here that'll show it 
in a, in a helpful way, classification of reasons. It's correct reasons. They're seeming reasons. And then there's, so, so that's like, it's sort of like a, a classification of reasons by entity, correct and seeming. And then there's a terminological classification of reasons. The terminological, terminological includes all these different technical factors or technical aspects of the uh, syllogistic process. And it doesn't make sense just to enumerate the, these. We'll basically be going through these, through this presentation to a, a greater or lesser extent. I'm not sure exactly how much detail they'll go into these, this level of detail. Seeming reasons include invalid reasons, <laughs> such as because, you know, why does it do this? Because there's contradictory reasons and there's uncertain reasons. Those are all not uh, capable of producing a valid, inferential valid cognition. Okay, the three types of correct reasons are um, causation, here called result, which is the dog and the poop, or fire and smoke. Then there's self-nature, hot and burning. Fire is hot and burning. So you can deduce situations based on knowing the nature of phenomena. Fire and um, ice cannot exist in the same space because of their nature is opposing their, their opposing nature. And then the third one is non-observation. So I have to correct that other chart, but um, non-observation is the most important of the three types of reasons because it's how we prove egolessness and emptiness through not observing what we should observe if there were a self, if there were an essence to phenomena. <clears throat> then they would, we would observe certain things. And there's all sorts of different um, subcategories, varieties of non-observation. Uh, the, the first and most uh, important one is like, well, some things you don't observe. <laughs> you know, there's things that are invisible, like air particles. We don't see air particles. We don't see atoms. We don't see things that are too far away to see. You know, so certain phenomena are not observable. Ghosts. <laughs> so the normal, uh, to the... Uh, to most normal human beings. You wouldn't, you know, the fact that you don't see a ghost in the room doesn't mean there's not a ghost in the room. 
um, paranoia. Just because you don't know that somebody is watching you doesn't mean somebody actually is out to get you. That was meant as a joke, by the way. Um, so the first, you know, big categorization of non-observation is things that are naturally not observable versus those that are observable. And then there, among those that are observable, then there's different varieties based on uh, situations and conditions and so forth that we'll get into. But uh, the main thing that it comes to is understanding that uh, the self and the skandhas don't have any viable relationship because if there was a self, then we would observe certain behavior, certain aspects of the self. If, if the self uh, had a relationship with the skandhas, then it would, we would be able to observe certain things about the self. If the self had no relationship with the skandhas, then we would observe a disconnect between the self and the skandhas, but we don't observe that. So there's uh, various ways of using non-observation to prove and the, the true nature of reality. So that's the third of the three types of uh, reasons that are crucial for bringing about an inferential valid cognition or proving the predicate about a subject in a uh, three-part syllogistic um, statement or hypothesis. And then just briefly, we'll look real quick at See if this has a coherent version of the three modes. There's three ways that, in order to produce a, a convincing inferential valid cognition, there's three relationships between the, the subject, predicate, and reason that have to be in place. The first is that the reason has to apply to the subject. If you say um, the mountain is on fire because there's smoke, um, you have to see smoke on the on the mountain. If you said the, there's a fire on the mountain because there's smoke and there's no smoke, then it, that doesn't help. It doesn't produce an inferential valid cognition. It's very simple. The reason has to apply to the subject. And then the next two are more complicated. And uh, so the first one is, has this catchy phrase, name called the subject quality of the three modes, subject quality mode. And then the, the next two have forward and reverse pervasion. And the, the word pervasion means that uh, it, in the sense of inclusion, of pervading, 
that one thing has to pervade another. And so the technical definition of forward pervasion is that the reason, which is the third part of the syllogism, like because I see smoke, applies to all instances of the predicate. So the mountain is on fire, the mountain is the subject, and the predicate is it's on fire because I see smoke. And that only works if smoke applies to all instances of fire. And then there's the reverse pervasion that says the opposite of the predicate. So the mountain is not on fire applies to all instances of the opposite of the reason. The mountain is not on fire because I don't see smoke. Is that is that ironclad? If a mountain is not on fire, would there not be smoke? It's not as ironclad as the first way, right? You're muted, whoever is. If anybody's trying to talk, you're all muted. Anyway, so those are the three modes. And uh, one thing that I didn't go through that hopefully we'll go through is that there are different types of um, different types of so-called evidence. There's uh, um, rumor. And we all know rumor is not a valid uh, source of information. And then there's linguistic convention. It's like, oh, well, we call it that. It's like, what is that? It's, it's so-and-so, that's just what we call it. Um, or the way that we think about it, the way that we think things happen. Like, um, uh, there's uh, like lots of beliefs that cultures have about their worlds that they don't really investigate, but it's just handed down from generation to generation about the way things are. This is common to things like prejudices about types of people and so forth. There's no real proof of these things, usually, but they're just common belief that are passed down. And then there's a reasoning based upon fact. And uh, so in the, in the Buddhist tradition, the emphasis is on reasoning based upon fact, which means, which really means we cultivate inferential valid cognition based upon direct valid cognition. So in the example, the mountain is on fire because I see smoke is based on a direct valid cognition of smoke. It's not based on, oh, somebody told me there was smoke or it's the smoky mountains and therefore it's on fire, you know, that sort of thing. So anyway, that's the end of the course. That's the whole course right there. But uh, that's the end of tonight's uh, class at least the review. And we didn't we didn't go through choppas. Let, let's take one minute, we're over time, but just like, let's take one minute and go through choppas uh, 18, pain in the butt. 
Um, how about the last one must be the hardest one, right? Understanding permanent phenomena and understanding things. This topic establishes the premise that if something is permanent, then valid cognition that comprehends it to be permanent must exist. And if something is a thing, i.e. impermanent, then valid cognition that comprehends it to be a thing must exist. And that these two categories form a dichotomy. These are mutually exclusive. And this is basically saying that there's generally characterized and specifically characterized phenomena. And they're based upon valid cognition. They're established by valid cognition. Understanding existence and non-existence, that if something exists and valid cognition that comprehends its existence must exist and vice versa. And that's a dichotomy. Anyway, that's an odd little grouping of uh, topics by uh, Chapa Chikin saying yeah, there was 18. But I think we have some understanding of uh, all of it and uh, uh, a good understanding of the important parts. Comments, suggestions, questions, thoughts, analysis, uh, announcements, anything. Let us conclude. <laughs> it's an energetic crowd here tonight. <laughs> By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May it free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Take care. Good night. Good night. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs>